We're going to read Jonah chapter 2, we'll read the whole chapter, and uh, we're going to try and open that up a little bit. Then Jonah prayed. These are really, really important words. The theme we're going to be thinking about today is the kind of prayer that God hears. And uh, look how it begins. Then Jonah prayed. To the Lord is God from the belly of the fish, saying, I call out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, in this first chapter of, of the book, we've been introduced to this guy, and uh, we've been seeing this really honest portrayal of a man who's got all these flaws. We've seen things like his deep, bigoted hatred of the people that he was sent to preach to. They weren't Jewish people. They were, they were very much the enemies of the Jews, and God wants them to go and preach to them. So he's a bigoted, hateful guy. Uh, who doesn't want to go there. He's probably also afraid of them, understandably. We've seen him turn around and run away from God, which, of course, is the very thing we all do whenever we embrace sin and whenever we embrace stuff we know isn't God's will for us. We've seen him run away from God. And we've seen him act, thanks to Irina for this word, but we've seen him act like a a diva in his um, efforts to kind of pretend to repent, but he's really just... Um, When he asks them to throw him into the sea, Jonah isn't really engaging in repentance at this point. He's engaging in the kind of self-pitying, this kind of depressingly self-centered effort to bring attention back to himself. Because he isn't really wanting to change at this point. And in it all, you see him sink deeper and deeper and deeper, further and further away from the living God. All the way through that first chapter... It's got this language of him going down and down and down. It's a very deliberate way of just describing his descent into a dark, dark place, a place of total hopelessness and despair and aloneness. So this is Jonah chapter 1. This is a cheerful passage. And um, we end up at the very last point where it says, God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And he was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And it gets worse because he's not only in the belly of this massive fish, I'd, I'd, I'd make a case that Jonah dies. You know, no one survives b- being caught up in the weeds in the bottom of the ocean. And he says he's, he's in the belly of this fish. He describes it as being in Sheol. Did you see that in verse 2? Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. 
A bit further down in verse 6, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The pit, he calls it. Jonah, his life has been taken away from him and God has done it to him. This is how this book begins. And I think it's a book that gives us a lens, an insight, a window into how God deals with us. How I understand it is like this. You know when new phones uh, come out, like the new iPhone came out just a few weeks ago and Google's Pixel phones are going to be released in a few days. When these new things come out, one of the, some guys buy them. I don't know how they get hold of them so quickly. They buy them and they make videos of dropping them, which you know, <laughs> just doesn't seem like the kind of thing you want to do with a precious item worth 900 pounds or whatever. But anyway, they, they obviously make money from destroying these things. So they drop them, film them in slow motion. They show you how resilient these precious objects are. Because what they want to see is, what's the tension point? Where's the point at which this thing is no longer going to stay in one piece? How high can you drop it from? Onto a hard surface. What happens if it lands on that edge or that edge? At what point does this phone smash into smithereens? And they're doing it for our benefit, because obviously... Who here hasn't dropped their phone? I mean, we've all dropped them. Some, some of you have a habit of breaking them successively. One, you know, every week you've got a, a new broken screen. I think this is what's going on in Jonah 1. God takes a man and drops him. It's the drop test. He's trying to find out this in particular. How strong is this guy's faith? The things in which he places his hope his dependence. If I press him, if I make his life hard, if I chase him down, if I surround him with the storm, if I make it inevitable that the sailors interrogate him and then throw him overboard, if I ensure that he is sunk to the bottom of the waves, when does this man eventually break? And the reason is that God is wanting to expose in Jonah's heart his real dependencies, the, the real things that he, he looks to for his identity and his sense of, of worth and being. And of course, it's not the living God. It's his, it's his rebellion. It's his comfort. It's his, it's his selfish, self-pitying desires. This is how God breaks us. He puts us in a point where you can no longer hold together in one piece in order to expose what's really in your heart. And the only way you can really know if your life is built on the right kinds of foundations is to find out at what point those things crumble and fail you. Now, when you think about the world in which we live, what do you suppose are the kinds of foundations that people build their lives upon? When you look around you in London and when you look, examine your own heart, your own soul, what is it that you've built your life on? What is it that you're living for? What is it that you would say you depend upon or the thing you want more than anything else or that gives you a sense of identity or purpose? And then ask yourself, do those things hold up when you're in the belly of a fish dying? So we look around us, we see people whose lives are entirely, entirely wrapped up with the pursuit of material possessions. Does it matter how much Jonah owns when he's in the belly of a fish? 
It's a silly question, isn't it, when you put it as starkly as that? We have people who, 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 uh, whose lives are swamped in kinds of vague kinds of spirituality which give them a sense of being or purpose, whether it's a, kind of, um, a little bit of a pick-and-mix faith or a bit of mindfulness or a bit of this and a bit of that. And you ask, well, how, how much of those things would be helpful for Jonah when he's in the belly of the fish? How much of that helps you when they're in the belly of the fish? This is a drop test, right? What holds up when you're, when you're in the pit? You look around us, see people living for ambition and career, and we see it in ourselves, don't we? How much of our lives are built on the pursuit of significance and achievement. You think, well, what does any of that matter when you're in the belly of the fish? You see people's lives are built upon being loved and admired, whether it's because of their you know, sculpted physique or whatever gifts you have that you have excelled in to the nth degree. What does that stuff matter when you're in the belly of the fish? That's the drop test. It's taking your life and bringing it to the point where the things that you hold on to, which you count as most important to you, break. And they no longer help you. That's what God does with Jonah. And I think that's what God does with us as well. Because God wants to turn him around. He wants to renew him. He wants to transform his life. And Jonah has to come to the point where he realizes that God is the most important being in the universe, the most important relationship in his life. And it's only when he is finally broken that he finally turns around. How does that happen? I want to show you a few things from this prayer in Jonah chapter 2. And the first is this. God will drive you to real prayer. Now, here's what's extraordinary in this chapter. This is the first time we see Jonah pray in the book. Chapter 2, then Jonah prayed. Now, it shouldn't be much of a surprise to you that he prays. I mean, this guy is a prophet. He's known to be a man of God. He's known to be someone who brings God's message to the people. So of all people on the face of the earth, Jonah should be one of the most prayerful one of the most dedicated to God. And yet up to this point, it seems that at no point has he decided to turn to God in prayer because he's been on the run from God. He's had his back to God. He's been determined to get away from God. So when it says, then Jonah prayed, it's notable, it shouldn't be, but it is. And it marks this, this moment in his life when he's suddenly broken. Because up to now, Jonah's been a kind of a hollow shell of a prophet. His outer image has been a man of God. You remember how he confessed in verse 9, he says that I'm a Hebrew, and he says, I fear the Lord God, this verse 9 of chapter 1, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So his words, his outer image is this guy who loves God and fears the living God, but inside his heart has not really been dedicated to God because he's been running away from him. And this is the same for all of us when our stated beliefs, what we confess with our lips, don't match up with the reality of the heart, what you can call our functional beliefs, the, the things that we really hold on dear to. And Jonas has this, has this massive contradiction. He's basically a hypocrite up to this point. And then God exposes how cheap those words are. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God. Well, I'm still going to kill you. 
God isn't fooled by empty confession. He'd heard his confession, but he keeps making it harder for Jonah. He turns up the volume on the storm. He gets it to the point where the sailors have no option but to throw him overboard. And then he makes sure that Jonah finds his burial site in the belly of an enormous fish. Why is God doing this? I think you've got to agree with me. It's because God wants to break him. He wants to break him completely. As long as there's a part of Jonah's heart that's holding on to this kind of autonomy and this desire to lead his own life, as hard as you make it, God, I'm still going to hold my fist up to you. God's going to make it more and more difficult until finally he can snap this man. Take the rug out from under him. Demolish his foundation. Smash his idols. Entirely break him. He just happened to be so stubborn that it, it took him to, to the point of death until it actually happens. You know, our prayer is, God, break us before we die. Change us before it gets that bad. And so when the chapter opens, then Jonah prayed. You've got to see that's pivotal for him. This is the point at which he's he's. He's given up on empty confessions of faith in the living God and decided, I actually need to turn to God. Friend, I speak to you as gently as I can. I say, look, there's a big difference between someone who confesses Jesus as Lord and someone who has genuinely turned to him and made him the Lord of their life. There's a big difference between saying I'm a Christian And actually turning to God in this sincere way that Jonah does. Absolutely broken, but totally desperate. And so at the very lowest point that Jonah gets to, this is the pivotal turning point for him when he finally prays. And I think this is the most real prayer you'll ever see. It's so sincere because it is so utterly desperate. And I say that for a few reasons. One is because at this point when Jonah starts speaking, it's not for the benefit of anyone else to hear. No one else is around him. He's alone in the belly of this fish. It's easy to confess that you're a believer in God when you're among community who honor that. But when you're a prophet, honored in the land. You know, Jonah's been used by God to expand the borders of Israel. He's spoken in the king's court, told the king prophetic words from the living God. It's easy to confess that you're a believer when, the thing, when people around you are affirming that. When you're alone, and no one's listening, that's when you know your prayers are real. Here's another thing about it. This prayer is totally spontaneous. He's not engaging. You know, they used to talk about saying your prayers. And it was kind of like, you know, I say my prayers every day. In other words, I, I go to, to, to God at the same moment every day, whether it's before I go to sleep or at the crack of dawn. I say my prayers, like a duty that you go through. And I'm not one to discourage the importance of regularity and duty to these things. But you and I know that sometimes it can, it can, it can be hollow when you're not really engaging with God. But when you pray as Jonah does, and you turn to God, in spontaneous way as he does here. 
That's when you know this prayer is real. And another thing about this prayer, there's nothing scripted about it. It's not that he's rehearsing ancient liturgies that he's learned off by heart. Or that he's reciting a prayer he learned every day in assembly at school. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There's nothing about that in this prayer. This prayer is the outbursting of his desperate cry in a moment where there is nothing to help him but God himself. And so a couple of things I want to keep you, in mind, you to keep in mind at this point is on the one hand, God made this happen to him. God hunted him down. You see, he knows it. He says things like this in verse 3. He says, you cast me into the deep. Are you in a, in a dark place at the moment? Do you know, it's very comforting when you begin to realize that maybe God cast you into the deep. As long as you look at yourself as a victim of your circumstances or of fate or as of unfairness, you'll always be wrapped up in, in self-pity. But when you can turn to God and say, you cast me into the deep, then you can begin to ask the question, well, why? He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. He says, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, you know, you've read the story like I have. Actually, it wasn't God who threw him into the sea. It was the sailors. Jonah could have turned around and blamed the sailors for drowning him, even though he told them to do it. But he recognizes whether it was his instructions to the sailors or the sailors' action in throwing him in. In and through it all, it was actually God working to ensure that, it was, that Jonah would drown and die. And finally, Jonah says, you are inescapable. Where can I flee from your presence, as the psalmist says? There's nowhere you can go, and God will not hunt you down. God brings him to this point. God did it to him. And God had this goal. This is what else I want you to keep in mind. He had the goal of bringing Jonah to the point of utter dependence to something genuine. He was fed up of this fake relationship in which Jonah would say the things that he told him to say, but also run away when he felt like it. He brings him to the point where he really prays, maybe for the first time in his life. And when you look at the, the desperate place from which this prayer comes, I, you know, I think most of us will look at this and then begin to wonder if we've ever really prayed. God did it to him. God will drive you to real prayer if all you are is a hollow shell of a believer. Here's the second thing I want you to see here. The real prayer is a mixture of absolute despair and rock-solid certainty. It's a paradox, isn't it? How do those two things come together and meet? Well, they do in prayer, and here's how. I want you to think about them in turn. Let's think first about Despair. Despair sets in when hope has been exhausted. And there is a type of hope in the Christian life which is absolutely wonderful and good. I'm not talking about that hope. I'm talking about the kind of hope Jonah had in his heart that made him keep running. Why do you keep running unless you think that there's a chance you can get away? 
And as long as there's this glimmer of hope in Jonah's heart that maybe I'll get away from God, maybe I'll find peace in some distant land, as long as there is even a flicker of hope in his life that something other than obeying God will fulfill him, as long as there is even a glimmer of hope, he's going to keep running. And the only time when Jonah finally gives up is when God extinguishes his hope altogether and pushes him into absolute, utter despair. It sounds cruel, doesn't it? It sounds cruel unless you understand that God wants him to discover his real purpose and joy in him alone. It's God's kindness when he shows you the weakness of every other hope you have that's not him. And how does God do it? And this is so important. If there's one thing you want to see here today, please look at this. He does it by giving Jonah exactly what he wanted. When the book opened, and God's instructions went to Jonah, and Jonah turned around and ran away, he told us in verse 3 of chapter 1, twice it says, that he fleed from the presence of the Lord that he went away from the presence of the Lord. So what's Jonah after? Jonah is after escape, hiddenness. It's all good. Can we just drop that? Let's see if it breaks. Jonah is after escape. He's after hiddenness. He wants to flee from the presence of God. Can you agree with me that that is his number one goal when he runs away from God, right? He obviously has in mind some utopian existence where God isn't around. Now, I don't know, I, he's obviously engaging in something irrational there because obviously he knows that God's everywhere. But he, he just hopes against hope. I can maybe run away from this horrible calling that God's put on my life. So he runs. He says he runs away from the presence of the Lord. And then he tells us, here he is at the point of being totally smashed What does he tell us in verse 4? He says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Which is to say, he got what he wanted. He was running after a life without God. And God said to him, you can have it. I'm driven away from your sight. So here's what I'm trying to help you see. That as long as Jonah keeps hoping that the life without God might be better, he's going to keep running. And it's only when God gives him the very thing that he's after and he discovers that in that place is nothing but darkness and hopelessness and despair that he's finally broken. And friends, that is exactly how God deals with us. When you have a misplaced hope, something you've been running after as a replacement, a substitute to God himself, sometimes God allows you to have it in order to discover just how vacuous it is. You make your life about the pursuit of possessions. Maybe he'll let you have them. 
until the point where you realize that nothing you have is really worth all that much at the end of the day. You make your life about lust. Sometimes God will let you fill your heart up with the experiences and the pleasures of lust until you vomit. Until you feel so sickened by it. You fill your heart with the desire to achieve things. And maybe he'll let you reach the pinnacle. All your dreams come true only to show you, only to prove to you that you're in a dark place when you make your life about that. God gives it all to you in order to demonstrate just how rubbish it all is without him. I think that's why, towards the end of this prayer, when he says in verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He wants to set it up as a, a total contrast, a dichotomy, an either-or. He's saying, when I run away from your love, O oh God, I ran into the arms of vain idols, emptiness, despair, and darkness. And it seems to me that Jonah only really learns to pray, only really learns what it is to hunger after God when, he is, when absolute despair has set in. If that was all we experienced, life would be very depressing, wouldn't it? But here's what I'm trying to help you see, that real prayer, the kind of prayer, the genuine relationship with God that he wants you to have is this mixture of absolute despair where you despair of anything but God to satisfy your soul and rock-solid hope. And this is where you see such amazing light coming through in this prayer again and again. He says things like this. He says in the second verse, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, despair, abandonness. And what? And you heard my voice. Total confidence and hope. He says things like this in verse 4. He says, I'm driven away from your sight. I succeeded in running away from you. But then he says in the very next line, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Now, this would be presumptuous if you didn't understand the grace of God. How can it be that in the darkest place where his, 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 it, all of his life has crumbled and, and, and slipped through his fingers, that it's there that he finally recovers his hope in God? It's God's mercy to him. This is the restored confidence of the backslider when you finally realize that home was the best place after all. When you finally realize that all your running and your adventure was a waste of your time and a waste of your life. And that you just want to go home. I think that's in Jonah's heart. He's in the belly of a fish, but he's thinking about the temple. Friends, this is a perfect parallel to how everyone who ever becomes a Christian gets saved. For me, it's perfectly captured in that sixth verse 
where he says this, At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I'm dead. And then these exceptionally powerful words, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. I was dead, yet you. I was in the pit, yet you brought up my life. I was full of despair, realized that I'd wasted my life and my energy and my time and all my gifts, and I was dead, yet you brought me up. Friends, when you go over to a place like Ephesians 2, this is what Paul says happens to everyone who becomes a Christian. Starts in that place of being in the pit. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. And the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that's not working the sons of disobedience and so on. He says, friends, it's not a very flattering portrayal of what it means to live without God. He says, without God, you were dead. He doesn't mean physically dead. He means spiritually dead. You had nothing. All that you had was going to disappear in the end anyway. You were dead. You're in the pit. You're in Sheol. And then he says these two words. Ephesians 2.4 But God being rich in mercy. Do you remember that Jocelyn drew our attention to that in the first song we sang? We didn't talk together before the service. I think God wants to get something through to some of you today. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached for eight years through the book of Ephesians, taking one phrase at a time, one verse at a time, week after week. And he preached a famous sermon on those two words, but God. I'm not a good enough preacher to preach on only two words of the Bible. But he is basically making, setting up this great contrast, that without God, your life is empty, and vacuous, and will end, eventually end up in a place of darkness and despair. And that also you're spiritually dead. You don't even have the gift or the ability within yourself to run after God. But God. But God, he says, being rich in mercy. It is all his kindness and nothing of what you bring to the table. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Isn't this what Jonah's telling us in his prayer? I was at the root of the mountains. In other words, I was at the very bottom of the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you... But God brought me up from the pit. And so it is that you can, when you really learn to pray, absolute despair and total confidence can be yours in a moment. And you go in the same moment from the experience of the pit to being the assurance of speaking to God in his temple. It's amazing, isn't it? God is not interested in try-harder versions of religion. Where you come along, you say, I'm 60% there. 
Now I just need to engage with this particular path towards self-development and self-improvement until I'm maybe 85, 86%, whatever it takes for God to, to, to accept me. Which is basically every other religion on the face of the planet. That's, the kind of, that's it in a nutshell. You can go and read about it all, but friends, I've just given you the shortcut. And Christianity is, doesn't say that. It says, no, you were zero. You were a zero. But God loved you. You were dead, but he loved you. You were, had your back turned to him, but he, but he loved you. But God, but God did it. He came after you. If you find yourself in a place where you think, I'm, I'm in the pit right now. Thank you, God, for your mercy in showing that. God wants to give you a reignited hope, but a hope that is grasping onto something more solid than anything you've ever run after in your life before. He wants to break you so that he can mend you. He wants to smash you so that he can make something of you. Here's my final point. God listens to such prayers. When you learn to pray like this, not as a religious act, not as an insincere mixed thing, not as a thing done for the benefit of other people, not while you're in two hearts running after the world and thinking about flirting with God a little bit. When you learn to pray in the place of despair, with your only hope being God himself, those are the kind of prayers that God listens to. That is what Jonah discovered here. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. My prayer came to you in your temple, and I'll, I'll look at it again. Now, God didn't have to listen to him. This is the extraordinary thing. And yet, at the same time, it seems that God is bound by his own grace and mercy to listen to anyone who is truly desperate. I don't think God ever turns away a person who reaches this point of absolute, exasperated despair of any other hope but him. I think whenever a person calls out to him from that place, God listens to those prayers because he is bound by his own faithfulness and love. This is what dawns on Jonah when in the last line of his prayer he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's like you don't have to listen to me because I actually deserve to be cast into the pit forever. But he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is your character. It's really interesting, actually, that in the original, what he says there, listen carefully. He says, Yeshua ta ladonai. Did you hear in there the name of Joshua? Yeshua ta ladonai, which means Lord. Yeshua, Joshua, which is the name Jesus. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is that whilst God can ignore Jonah at this point and turn his back on him forever, God's also chosen a name for himself. He named his son Jesus. He said, this is just who I am. So that whenever a person turns to me in absolute despair and brokenness and distress, I'm not going to turn my back on such a person. I am salvation. Salvation is mine. Jesus is the Savior. And friends, this is the extraordinary thing. God listens to this prayer, but it's not only to forgive Jonah, which in itself would be a miracle and enough for any one of us. But he does more than that. 
He goes over and beyond just forgiving Jonah, which would sort of just be bringing him to a place of acceptance into the family. He does two more things for him here, which overwhelm you when you think about the significance of what it means for our lives. The first of all, he resurrects him. He could have taken his life permanently, but God is the God of the second chances. And the third chance, and the fourth chance, and he keeps giving and throwing opportunities at us. And here's Jonah, a man who has totally, totally blown it. And yet God gives him new life. He gives him a new start. He gives him a new page. He gives him a new beginning. And that's what he says in this last verse of the chapter. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Resurrection time, friends. This is what Paul said in that same chapter in Ephesians 2. When he said that, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us, he says, and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He didn't just forgive you. He gave you new life. A new start. A resurrection. What are you going to do with that? Isn't the life just so full of possibilities now? He resurrected him. And let me tell you one last thing. He recommissioned him. I don't even know why God does this. But for some reason, he decides I'm still going to use this man. He gives him a new purpose, a new calling. He redirects him. Spits him back onto land so that he can get back to Nineveh to fulfill what he was originally intended to do in the first place. And this is what God does to us. And here's what I think is God's work in Jonah's life. I don't think Jonah can preach to the Ninevites about a God, the God, the true, the God of the Bible, until he in his own heart has experienced the brokenness and then grace and mercy that comes from that God. He can't preach with anything like conviction, purpose, or fruitfulness until God absolutely shows him his absolute dependence upon himself and how amazing God's grace is. But when Jonah sees that, he finally becomes useful. You're saved by grace, friends, in order to become a messenger of that same grace. This is why I think at the end of his prayer, he says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. This is the kind of words that come from a man who suddenly realizes that his life is no longer his own, that his calling is to live for God alone, and that there is a thrill in now being able to offer back his life to God as a willing slave. Isn't that what Paul also discovered? How often he refers to himself in those terms. He says, I'm a slave of Christ. Why? Because I should be dead and gone. I should be rejected. But Jesus purchased me. And now my life isn't my own. And Jesus can do what he wants with me. Now that I've tasted this grace. He can give me 
joys and pleasures beyond my wildest dreams. He can also allow me to suffer for his cause. I don't mind. I'm a slave. I don't answer back. I don't question my calling. I belong to you, God. In 1 Timothy, when Paul was um, thinking about his, reflecting on his own past, and you always feel, I feel something of the pain when I read these words, because, you know, Paul, no doubt, could never shake the memory of how wicked his past had been, how he'd hunted down Christians and wanted to pursue them unto death, how he'd stood there and watched that heavenly man, Stephen, being stoned to death, and stood there endorsing what was happening. This is Paul's heart, a dark heart. And here's what he says about himself reflecting on his, on his life and what God had done to him in saving him. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Overwhelmed by grace he is at this point. But I receive mercy, he says. And it's not just so that I can be accepted and know God and his forgiveness. He says more than that. He says, God raised me up and then he recommissioned me. Same as what he did with Jonah. Because he goes on and says, I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Friend, if you're a Christian, you are Jonah, you are Paul. I hope that you can look at your life and see something of the darkness, not to wallow in it, but to be able to say along with Jonah and along with Paul, I'm the foremost, I'm the worst. And then to be able to say that God therefore is displaying his mercy in me. When your heart is transformed by grace in that way and you begin to realize the kindness of God, All you can do is crawl onto the altar and say, God, have all of me. What I have vowed, that I will pay. And offer up your life as a living sacrifice. That's what it means to be recommissioned in God's purposes. All the other things that you were running after, you kill them. You deny them. You turn away from them. And you say, God, I belong to you alone. And I'm here to serve you. My time is yours. My passions are yours. My possessions are yours. My obedience is yours. My mouth is yours. This is the wonder of this book. That God takes failures and rebels breaks them and turns them into his prophets and his mouthpieces. And he rebuilds them and he gives them a sense of eternal purpose and significance. Is that something that you want? I hope every heart in here says, yes, that is what I want. Can we pray together? Lord, we don't want to live apathetic lives. Lives that are mixed. You know, the kind of the lukewarm Christian who 
pays lip service to Jesus and is really living for other things. I pray, Father, I pray it for myself and I pray it for every person here. Show us how futile it is to live a life running away from you. Lord, do it in your mercy because otherwise we keep running after it. Otherwise we keep hoping. Break us now, I pray. But break us so that we can be rebuilt, Lord. Break us so that, Lord, we, the experience of the pit will turn into the experience of resurrection and of being in the temple and of worshipping and of being in a living sacrifice laid down for you. Break us so that, Lord, our, our hearts are no longer wrapped up in ourselves and our desires and our pursuits. And that we can say along with Paul, along with Jonah, what I vowed I'll pay. I'm a slave of Christ. I belong to you, Lord. I'm yours entirely. And God, I know that every time we indulge our false hopes, indulge our lusts, indulge our sins, we're denying that fact. I thank you, Lord, that in place of vain idols, you've given us steadfast love. A love that cannot be broken. A love that pursues us unto death. A love that will drop us so that you can rebuild us. A love that wants us to experience fulfillment in obedience rather than in rebellion. So, Lord God, I pray now, for those here who are not yet in a place where they've been able to say, I want to follow Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you will help them to see how life without you is a dark thing. It's the belly of the fish. So that, Lord, in absolute despair, they'll have new hope in you. And I ask, Lord, for those of us who, who do call you Savior, who love you, Lord, I've given our lives to you. Lord, you know how easily, how easily we are wrapped up in ourselves like Jonah was, in our self-pity and our selfishness. Now we turn around and run away. Now our hearts are conflicted and split down the middle. Lord, we want one side to die so that the other side can live. We want all of that self selfish desire to go so that we can live for Christ entirely and experience the fullness of life in you. What I vowed that I will pay. And so may we, Lord, take the communion today as a double thing, a receiving of the life that you've given to us, but also a recommissioning that we belong to you and we are called to live for you. Pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen.